Welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford. This is Mark Gagne. How you feeling, Mark? I'm good, man. I feel like Manny Pacquiao with some sock and boppers. How are you feeling? I feel like a fish that's been eaten by a whale. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to Shitty Book Reports. Uh, this is where me and Mark each bring a book each week to uh, talk about, and uh, we play some games in between. So, <laughs> I mean, much. me and Mark are uh, friends... Uh, a little bit about us. Me and Mark are friends from high school. Um, we are starting this. Po- I I, I kind of just wanted to go into the reasons why each one of us is doing this podcast. I mean, do you want to start? Or do I want to start? Or what do you want to do? I think we might have the same reason. <laughs> I mean, well, start. yeah, my reason is that we've me and Mark are friends from high school and we have had this like text message that's literally been going on for 10 years. Like we, for some reason, we just like, you know, talk about books, movies, TV, like all this stuff all the time. And a lot of it is a literary, a a literature conversation, a conversation about books that I don't really have with anyone else. And I kind of just wanted to start the podcast just because I don't, I don't get to have that conversation. And I feel like when I do start to have that conversation in the real world, it gets like weird really quickly. You know, if I'm like, if I like start talking like deeply about books and stuff like that, people are like, Oh, I haven't read that. So, (laughs) so yeah. Or you're, you know, forced into talking about something that you're not interested in. (laughs) I know. Yeah. It's just like, it goes down like a weird road, especially if you're like talking about some like hoity toity literature or something like that. And people are like, I haven't read that and I don't know what you're talking about and blah, blah, blah. Um, And also we're both big, like I've learned about you recently that we're both pretty big podcast listeners. Yeah, yeah. Uh but yeah, for me it's it's you know, the same reason. We've we've had this like ongoing conversation forever, talking about like the like whatever hundreds or thousands of books we've read now in the last like ten years since high school and you know, we've always had similar kind of taste and uh you know, we'll read the same books just based on like really good recommendations, you know, right. and uh I think we we trust each other in that regard, so I know, it's yeah. Cool that's actually that into that's, a different medium. That's a good point. Like that happens with me all the time. Where like, if you text me about a book, I like it goes on my list. Whereas like other people, they'll tell me about a book, and I'll be like, yeah, okay, maybe, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the gold standard of recommendation, but also just like I like it too. Like we like sometimes we read the same book at the same time on purpose and whatever. So. Uh, we also have a good cycle of doing highfalutin literature and then really trashy like Stephen King. So, yeah, <laughs> not to say that Stephen King isn't highfalutin sometimes, but it's you know, we do take those breaks where we're not reading fucking Pynchon or whatever. Yeah, mm. but I love uh, you know can relate a lot of things to Stephen King though, even if it's something you know so far removed. <laughs> I know. Well, because he yeah. just covered so much so much territory. It's universal. I wanted to, I I have like a thing of notes in front of me. I just wanted to go over sort of for the people listening what the format is. Um, We're lifting the format a little bit from some of our favorite or some of my favorite podcasts. I don't know about Mark's, but basically me and Mark are about to do a little bit of a book report, but I don't know what book he's doing and he doesn't know what book I'm doing. Um, And we're going to take turns. So should we, I don't know, like it kind of depends like who wants to go first or if we should like flip a coin or something. Uh, yeah, slip the coin. That will sound really good. Okay. <laughs> All right, I got one right here. You got one right there. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, good. yeah. All right. Do call it in the air, and I'll t- I'll tell you when it's in the air. Okay. All right. It's in the air. Tails. All right, heads. 
Oh shit. Okay, so you're going I think first. I'm going first. Yeah. So the very first podcast, Mark is going first. I have no idea what book this is, and uh, start it off. Okay. Uh, so this is a book that I have read a few years ago. So I've already talked to you about it in some context, uh-huh. but I don't think I gave it like that fully. Like you need to like read this right now, kind of review. So I don't. I don't right. think you've read this. Okay. Uh, yeah. But you know, throughout the years, I've appreciated it so much more. You know. Yeah. thinking about it and, and you, uh, ju- you just to revisit it this year you just reread it right yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. all right so the book that i chose is uh warlock mm, okay. the 1958 novel by oakley hall okay cool yeah uh, i've so seen this i you, since you've talked about this i've seen it on the shelf like 10 times and i've refused yeah, to buy yeah. it every time for some reason but <laughs> okay uh so a little bit about the author uh-huh. Uh, he's an American author. This is, uh, I mean, easily his best known work. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer in 1958. Oh, good. Uh, and then it was made into a film right after in 1959 with, uh, starring Henry Fonda. Okay. Have you seen the movie? I have not. I need to okay. check it out after this. Yeah. I was like, cause that's another thing, um, that I sometimes do with books is like, I will cast like in my head, like who the main character is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like when you're reading dark tower, you're just thinking about like Clint Eastwood and stuff like that. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of a good segue. Cause this is, this is a Western. Uh, it's like oh, okay. one of the only like literary Westerns I can think of. The title so... fits very well with being a Western. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's, you it's say, not like it's not about witches and stuff like. You completely just changed my entire perception of the book because every time you said warlock, I was like, I don't want to pick up this fantasy right now. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's not what it is at all. So warlock uh-huh. is the name of the town. Oh, uh, okay. And it's so it's a fictional town uh, in set in the 1880s. It's in the American Southwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's loosely based on some of like the really crazy events that happened in uh, Tombstone, Arizona, okay. back in that time. Uh, and tomb, ha- Tombstone, aka the, the town too tough to die, that's what they call it. Mm. Apparently, okay. uh, so th- yeah, Tombstone was known for like you might have heard about the gunfight at the OK Corral and like uh, yeah, Wyatt Earp, yeah, yeah. oh, okay, Doc yep. Holliday, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, the big, uh, you know, those crazy larger than life shootouts that happened, mm-hmm. uh, cowboys versus you know, higher hands, policemen, and all that. Okay, like yeah, in the yeah. early days of, I guess, law enforcement in America. <laughs> yeah, the, the first time, the first time the law was enforced. Yeah, they tried to do anything at all. Uh, so that's what this book is really about. It's about Warlock is a mining town mm-hmm. uh, that's just been terrorized by outlaws to the point that you know all the business owners come together. Uh, they form what they call a citizens committee, and uh, they desire to like pool their money and hire like a big shot lawman uh from texas mm-hmm. who's got you know some legend built around him uh they hire him to be the town marshal and try to like establish some kind of order because they're just you know it's just chaos in this town mm-hmm. so it's so, like uh, so is the main character that badass guy yeah yeah okay. uh so he shows up he shows up pretty early on like they you know establish that things need to change mm-hmm. uh so the guy's name is clay blaisdell Mm-hmm. it's a bit it's uh, it's like so, a you say it came out in 58 yeah because i'm looking so it predates like you know clint eastwood it like made that archetype right because uh, like because yojimbo the the kurosawa movie comes out in 1961 i just looked that up and that's kind yeah, of like a similar I don't know plot where the, yeah yeah hmm, okay um 
So he shows up. His guys, the guy's name is Clay Blaisdell. Uh, and in his like introductory scene, he immediately he like establishes himself as like a badass, and he's gonna you know, change everything in the town. And they were right to you know hire him. Everything works out perfectly. He uh, he shows up. Like the first word he says is whiskey. Like he, he shows up at a bar, you know, <laughs> he immediately like downed some whiskey and then right away, like, uh, you know, back, back then, like if you got the drop on someone, that's like mm-hmm. the advantage, you know, you, you got them, uh, if you like drew first or whatever. Right. Uh, so he does that, you know, he, he gets the drop on the, the whole outlaw crew, like in this saloon and it's just like a really awesome scene. But he like establishes the order right away, and everyone's like, "Okay, we made a we made a great decision hiring this guy." Mm-hmm. Uh, but he basically establishes like a law in this town where <laughs> instead of like three strikes and you're out, it's just one strike, and <laughs> if you show up in the town again, what they call it, if you're posted, mm-hmm. if you're posted and you show up in Warlock again, he just has the right to kill you. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> one one strike and you're fucked. Yeah, yeah. If you show up, uh, I'm gonna shoot you. So the outlaws like immediately take this as a challenge, uh, and that sets up, you know, the whole rest of the story is kind of predicated off that. Where this guy, you know, he is immediately seen as a hero, and throughout the book, he realizes that, you know, he set this kind of thing into motion, and you know, dealing with stubborn outlaws, like it's, it becomes, you know, a war of attrition where he's just, mm-hmm. he's not able to do everything right. And throughout the book, his role, you know, changes from like basic lawman to like public executioner. <laughs> um, things get really messy. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, some, some great backstory where uh, his like deputy sheriff, like the second in command with him. Mm-hmm that he's someone who used to run with that same outlaw crew oh. and his, his brother still does. So does he, so fi- does he like story. find that out like in the middle somewhere of like, or did he always know? Oh no, no, that's like, that's known the whole time. But like, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a big struggle with that deputy sheriff, like trying to, you know, give a shit about his brother, but also like, you know, have some kind of respect for like law and order in his town. Right. Um, and there's uh there's another great, layers there's other great layers to the story there's some good revenge plots uh there's this whole other subplot about like unionizing of the mining workers oh okay Um, and there's all these workers like they're all just getting like fucked up throughout the book Uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) and like you fucked up by by violence or like or like drugs and stuff just horrible working conditions and everything so they there's like a whole thing about them unionizing Um, okay yeah, it's incredibly well done. Um, I mean, you might think of like a Western story as kind of straightforward, uh, but it's more in the like Cormac McCarthy kind of vein where it's very, very well written. Um, yeah. Just a, just a really, really awesome book. Um, so a lot of it kind of re- like the influences that it had on other books, it kind of, it kind of made me think of like uh, Tull, in uh, Dark Tower One, like the Gunslinger. Yeah. Uh, I I didn't want to like give that away when you're we we're just like talking about King, but like I knew I was gonna like bring up something <laughs> about that. But yeah, the 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 town reminds me a lot of Tull. Like it's just kind of Tull is is bit. in is where they fight. That's the, the first one where he just lays to waste like the entire 
town, oh, but there's like okay. uh, we're talking we're talking about Dark Tower Book One, player. Stephen King, yeah, Dark Tower yeah, Book One. <laughs> one of my like formative, or one of our formative like connections with uh, with novels. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, that's a that's a bit of our backstory of like we discovered the dark tower by stephen king which is his fantasy series and we were just like what the like i felt like we were the only two people who knew what it was <laughs> even though yeah. you know we were reading we were reading it like 10 years after the fact of it even starting but yeah yeah i took that out of like the middle school library like three or four times <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but that also it also kind of reminds me of uh the fourth book in that series too wizard and glass mm-hmm. where it's like a you know western kind of setting and it's the whole time you know who you know what the sides are like it's very well established and it's you know building towards something big the whole time mm-hmm. and it's like uh you know don't poke the bear in that scenario like <laughs> and that that's what ends up happening it just becomes you know uh, a story of kind of futility with this main character where he's a hero and then there's this whole other aspect of uh like uh crowd thought where the people in the town are whether for him or against him based on you know rumors and and uh some of his actions that may be kind of ambiguous like mm-hmm. uh morally i guess um but yeah it just sets into the into motion this whole story and and you know by the end his role is reduced to almost nothing like he he gets uh kicked out of the town and but he on like murder charges which he's acquitted of but eventually he just settles into being like a car dealer by the end of the book and then just uh you know the town is almost no better off than it was so he goes Um, yeah he goes from sort of like hero to zero yeah again Um, so and you said, you said that there was like, what brought you to this? You said that there was like some sort of like story behind what brought you to the book. So yeah, the reason why I chose this book is because it, uh, it has a connection to, uh, Thomas Pynchon and mm-hmm. I, I just want to get this part out of the way. I've never known exactly how to pronounce his name. Who? Pynchon? Yeah, is it Pinchon? Pinchon? I don't know. Is it yeah. Pinchon? I have no idea. I like. It, I like. I could be convinced that it's Pinecone because <laughs> I've heard it so many different ways. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I have no. Well, maybe he should come out. To, you know, come into the public eye and speak about it himself. But uh, yeah, I need to hear him say it. Yeah, he was on the Simpsons, but, but I don't think he said his own name. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Pinchon, Pinchon. So, like, Pinchon. Did he recommend it or something? Yeah, I'm gonna go with Pinchon. Uh, mm-hmm. So. So Pynchon and his late friend uh, Richard Farina, um, they were they were college buddies. They went to Cornell together. He was also an author, but he died, um, I think, in the early seventies mm-hmm. or late sixties, like after his own novel came out. Um, they were apparently so obsessed with this book during their time at Cornell that they formed uh, what they call the micro cult around it. <laughs> Uh, so I've been trying to speculate on what that could possibly mean because there isn't that much information about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pinchon, Pinchon <laughs> in his introduction to uh, Richard's novel, uh, been down so long it looks like up to me. They ta- he that's it. That's this. his friend, right? Yeah, yeah. That's his only novel. Mm-hmm. I think he also put out an album too of like folk music. Okay. Uh, 
so in this, he gives like a little bit more detail on it. And he said, uh, also in 59, we simultaneously picked up on what I still think is among the finest of American novels, Warlock by Oakley Hall. We set about getting others to read it too. And for a while had a micro cult going. Soon, a number of us were talking in Warlock dialogue, a kind of thoughtful, <laughs> stylized Victorian Wild West diction. And then, yeah, is that's, that, so? Is <laughs> I the, guess that happened. Does the book Warlock do, is some of the dialogue like interesting in Warlock? Like the way that he wrote it is is. Do you pick up on what Pynchon's saying in terms of like you could start? Yeah, to speak yeah, like the definitely. Book? I can't I can't think of any specific real examples, but you know they they do. Uh, speak like you would think, you know, 1880s, like Western mm-hmm. uh, kind of Wild West setting. Right. Uh, but I was trying to like speculate on what a micro cult would possibly be like beyond that. I wasn't sure <laughs> or they were like LARPing or something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> a micro cult, including Pynchon, and he doesn't let anyone else see his face. Yeah. Uh, like how micro was it? I don't, yeah. I don't know. Um, but, anyways, so he he has been a strong advocate of this novel. And like, actually on the, the copy that I have, I wanted to read, uh, his, his, um, I guess review, which is on on the back cover. Yeah. Uh, so here it is. Uh, tombstone, Arizona during the 1880s is in ways our national Camelot, a never, never land where American virtues are embodied in the herbs and the opposite evils in the Clanton gang where the confrontation at the OK Corral takes on some of the dry purity of the Arthurian joust. Oakley Hall, in his very fine novel, Warlock, has restored to the myth of Tombstone its full, mortal, bloodied humanity. Wyatt Earp is transmogrified into a gunfighter named Blaisdell, who is summoned to the embattled town of Warlock by a committee of nervous citizens expressly to be a hero, but finds that he cannot, at last, live up to his image, that there is a flaw not only in him, but also, we feel, in the entire set of assumptions that have allowed the image to exist. Before the agonized epic of Warlock is over with, the rebellion of the proto-wobblies working in the mines, the struggling for political control of the area, the gunfighting, mob violence, the personal crises of those in power, the collective awareness that is Warlock must face its own inescapable horror, that what is called society, with its law and order, is as frail, as precarious, as flesh, and can be snuffed out and assimilated back into the desert as easily as a corpse can. It is the deep sensitivity to abysses that makes Warlock one of our best American novels. For we are a nation that can, many of us, toss with all a plum our candy wrapper into the Grand Canyon itself, snap a color shot and drive away, and we need voices like Oakley Halls to remind us how far that piece of paper, still fluttering brightly behind us, has to fall. Damn. So... I think a lot of people have probably been drawn to reading this book from that alone. Yeah, for sure. Um, That's he's insane. mentioned it a few times. I think he was uh, quoted in Oakley Hall's obituary. Um, mm-hmm. I think in the early two thousands was when he died. Uh-huh. And that's, I mean. Again, I'm trying to. I, I, we have our own kind of like fast speech, so I'm trying to be aware that other listeners might think. You know, we're talking about Thomas Pynchon, who's like an insanely famous novelist and you know postmodernist hero of ours and everything like that. But I mean, that's a pretty strong review. Do you think, like, from your read of the book, like, is the book as deep as Pynchon is? Like, is he projecting deepness onto it, or is it really like that kind of like soulful? I think it it has all that and more. Um, I mean, 
based on just reading a little bit of like the history with uh, that tombstone, Arizona, uh, mm-hmm. I think it really captures what the hell was going on and how chaotic it was and, mm-hmm. and how people were, you know, scared for their lives at the times and um, how, you know, before any sort of law was established, things could get out of hand. Um, and that's, you know, it's not that long ago, if you think about it, like, I know, yeah. 1880s, for, 1880s, even when he was writing this book in 58, uh, it wasn't too far removed. I know, yeah. I mean, like, the the funny, the crazy thing about, you know, dates and, like, turn of the centuries and stuff like that is, like, people don't realize that 1880s not that long ago. Like, I always like to, you know, I think a fact that blows people's minds is, uh, you know, like, Hitchcock was born in 1899. <laughs> So it's like just that alone, like you know his movies and stuff like that. And I think I was listening to uh, uh, Joe Rogan has like a stand-up joke where he's talking about like so, like people live to be a hundred, right? Yeah. And then he just goes, and then he just like blows your mind by being like, so America technically could be like three people ago. Yeah. Like yeah. it's like not that long. <laughs> like my grandpa's 96 and he just like blew my mind when he said that i was like oh shit like someone who was 100 when my grandpa was born and then someone else who was 100 they would be like in the fucking like revolutionary war yeah lived through all that yeah like you're uh, saying it's not it's really not that long ago to think of to think of a place that being so lawless yeah so i think it really does um capture that and yeah, so, yeah, very interesting read. I can give it a really strong recommendation. Yeah, and um, actually, Pynchon himself too. I wonder because Pynchon goes a little bit into that, into that, uh, into Against the Day, which is like everyone's like least favorite Pynchon. But if you have you read Against the Day, a little bit of it? No, I haven't. Does he? I've, does he, is, I've read is like a th- kind of like Western. I've read like a third of it, and it is like. There is some Western element. There's some sort of, like, World's Fair sort of, like, elements, like, around that time. But he Mm. does have, like, some Western characters. Like, one guy is, like, a rogue, like, guy who blows up trains with dynamite and stuff like that. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, it's like this, there's, like, this, uh, I could definitely see the connection of him, like, loving that time period and, like, the lawlessness and stuff like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, one more thing I want to mention is that, so the, the version of this book I have is a 2006 uh, New York Review Books paperback. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I really like the cover. It's really weird looking, like, dot matrix picture of some kind of featureless outlaws mm-hmm. in, like, this really weird green, yellow, orange kind of mix. Uh, and on the back it says the, the piece that this is taken from is uh, it's called Do the World a Favor and Eat a Bullet. <laughs> yeah by sigmar nice. polk maybe this is maybe this is why i haven't picked up a version of it yet because i feel like every version i see of warlock there is so i think we have the same sort of syndrome of like when you see that edition on the shelf that you know is yours you know what i mean yeah like i i just like i don't think i've seen that for warlock yet but yeah i have i have so many books where i'm like yeah that like my edition is like the best one and like a, yeah yeah <laughs> It's got, you know, like you want, like you want a Stephen King to have that like tattered paperback, like it smells like it's a hundred years old and like, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So sick. Is that, is that all of your stuff for Warlock or do you have more? Yeah, that's all I had. I was going to say, uh, I was going to start by saying that I was, I was going to introduce, I'm, I'm reading this really like avant-garde novelist, uh, Theodore Geisel, 
Mm-hmm. It's like this really famous goth author. And then I was going to trick you into taking me seriously and then tell you that that's Dr. Seuss's name. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I didn't do that. You're playing literature jokes on me. <laughs> you can use that in literally like two podcasts from now and I'll have forgotten and be like, oh, okay. shit. Yeah, <laughs> use that later. Okay. So my book, I, I was like sort of hesitating doing this as the first one because he's such an important author to me. But you know, screw it, just go feet first. And I could do some of his mm-hmm. other books too. But um, I'm going to, I'm going to be talking today about uh, Confessions of a Mask by Yukio Mishima. Have you read Confessions Which, of a Mask? I have not. Okay. I haven't read anything by Mishima. Okay. Yeah. Mishima is, I'm, I'm probably going to be talking as much about the author himself as, as the book Confessions, because Confessions of a Mask is, I think his technically his second book, but definitely his first sort of like known book. Um, but I got to talk a little bit about Mishima first to kind of like get the background of, you know, his whole deal. And then the, the book is almost like set, like reading the, this book is incredible. Like confessions of a mask is like an absolutely incredible book about, it was introduced to me in college. Um, and my professor, just put on the board alienation from the self. And that was like the theme of like the entire class. And we were just talking about, you know, not really knowing who you are. So that's kind of like what confessions of a mask is about, but I have to take a step back and talk a little bit about Mishima. Do you know anything about him? I know he has a military background. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's got like a sort of, yeah, he's got like a proto military sort of like weird. Okay. So, so yeah, Mishima as like an actual person has like a really interesting background. He was famous during his lifetime as a writer. So like he was blowing up on the international stage. Like he was a famous Japanese novelist, but also like getting outside of Japan and like into the Western world because a lot of his writing was really Western stuff like that. But mm-hmm. he's a really sort of unique person because he is very right wing, like extremely right wing. Um, and I think maybe some of that, like the fact that I'm American and that I'm not Japanese and didn't grow up like getting taught Mishima as like an, an author and stuff like that kind of like might ma- like help me sort of analyze his writing for its beauty and not so much for its politics because he, his life story is absolutely insane. But one of the most important things about his life is how he died. Do you know this story? Like, do you know anything about it? No. So Mishima, when he died, uh, basically during his entire life, like his entire philosophy was that death is beautiful. And like the young are, you know, better than the old and you should die young and beautiful. And like all these like really like weird, like fetishized things that come up in his writing and stuff like that. So yeah, Mish- did he live to 100? No. <laughs> well, he d- he didn't live to 100 on purpose, uh, very much so on purpose. But he, in- Mishima died at the age of 45 in 1970. But on November 25th, 1970, he basically kind of like has a cult of personality as like a famous Japanese novelist at the time. And he recruits a bunch of like basically college age students or like young guys who are like, like into his movement he takes a bunch of these kids they all dress up in like military uniforms i don't even know if mishima was ever even in the military i should probably know that but i don't think he was but um they dress up in these military uniforms they get in a car 
and they go to like a government building, basically like a like a government of a prefecture or like one like basically like a government official's house. Mm-hmm. And he basically attempts a coup on the government. Okay. So he like is in this crazy military uniform. He he like kidnaps this guy, the Tokyo headquarters of this Japan self-defense force or whatever. And he basically loses it. Like he he kidnaps this guy. He goes out on the balcony of this military building where all the soldiers are just like, you know, obviously there's like a hostage situation. So they're all like ready to like storm the building. And he starts giving this like crazy speech where he's like saying like the gut like like uh you know japan should belong to the emperor and like like fuck this democracy that we're going through in post-world war to japan and stuff like that and everyone is just like basically not taking him seriously and like mocking him and it's like really awkward and weird and they knew who he was oh yeah oh yeah he's a famous yeah, novel. this just, is like yeah this is like yeah this is like a famous not this is like a jk rowling like took over a fucking building or whatever yeah <laughs> and so they're like what the hell's wrong with this guy and then he just goes back into the office where he kidnapped this guy and commits seppuku like harry carey like he mm-hmm. he stabs himself in the stomach like eviscerates himself and then actually one of my oh, sources shit. one of my sources for today is this book the life and death of yukio mishima by henry scott stokes and i had heard this story of like how he like committed you know ritual suicide after he did this like took over this crazy government building and you know whatever but in the bio in this book life and death of yukio mishima he goes into like way crazier detail where like one of the students like help him cut his head off and shit like they he's just so intense and like that is just the final day of his life like that's what happened when he decided i'm gonna die young and beautiful at the age of 45 and i'm gonna like do this crazy suicide shit did he leave so, like a manifesto or something? Or was that was just, you know, Well, he didn't leave he didn't leave a manifesto, but what he did on that day is he basically so at this point he's like an insanely famous novelist, like he's written like a few Japanese classics at this point, so mm-hmm. you can imagine like an author at that level like he basically just drops manuscripts off. Like I I'm sure he had like an editor and stuff like that, but he just like, you know, here's my newest book. And yeah. on that day, he gave the final manuscript of his final novel to the publisher and then was like, hey, I got to go do this thing. Oh, God. So that's just the final day of his life. But going back yeah, like insane. a little bit, it's absolutely insane. Like, it's so crazy. And going back, I think that that final incident in it, in, and I promise this all folds into his first book, Confessions of a Mask, but I think that that whole day is almost like a microcosm of what this dude, what this guy was like, because he he's really articulate. He's so amazing. He writes so beautifully, but at the same time, like his entire life is defined by that sort of like death is beautiful, like all these things, but also a sort of like awkwardness, like people don't understand him. So like when he's having this giant diatribe of like, you know, screw the government and everything. And everyone is like, dude, what the hell are you talking about? Like, it's so awkward. I almost feel like that's like a little like sort of microcosm of his life because, um, confessions of a mass to get into like the actual book. Um, is just like it's his most autobiographical novel and i'm gonna read something from that life and death of yukio mishima by henry stokes uh 
there's just like a short paragraph here where he talks about confessions of a mass. He says, my study of Mishima's life relies largely on a single source, his autobiographical masterpiece, Confessions of a Mask, published by New Directions in 1958, translated by Meredith Weatherby, which is the edition I have. I don't have a book from 1958, but she translated my edition as well. Yeah, we both chose 1958. That's really crazy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so this guy was publishing Confessions of a Mask when Warlock came out. Yeah. Um, uh, Henry Stokes goes on to say, this novel is the most striking of Mishima's many, Mishima's many works. It reveals more of his character and of his upbringing than anything else he wrote. It gives a crystalline account of his aesthetic. Confessions of a Mass describes the genesis of a romantic idea which impinges directly on his eventual decision to commit suicide. The notion that violent death is ultimate beauty, provided that he who dies is young. Thus Mishima drew on an ancient Japanese inspiration that beauty is temporary, and then he goes goes on to you know more analysis of how that kind of fits into some of uh japanese literary and art culture but um yeah i mean like i was saying i'm probably going to talk a little bit more about mishima than the actual book because confessions of a mask even though it's so good like basically people think it's his most autobiographical novel and it definitely is there's basically a silent narrator um, some people call it like Proustian, basically like he's not really named. Um, okay. I think his name in the book is like Kochan, but yeah, I was going to ask if it was I audit like biographical through a story or through you know, it just it's, up. it's a first person narrative. So it's like, right. I, I did this, I did that, but it is autobiographical through a story there. Like there aren't really events in the book that perfectly match up to Mishima's life but it's basically like it's a pretty classic story of like a really deep author like Mishima when he was young was like a sickly child and like his grandma took care of him and like he didn't play with other kids that much and that's like everything that's going on in Confessions of a Mask um but he just has he's one of those people that has the ability to sort of just like be talking normally like you're just reading a pretty standard book and then he just drops like huge bombshells that are really well written and you're like that's <laughs> insane um so the plot of confessions of a mask is that you know basically beginning middle and end is the beginning he is physically weak and like doesn't really like get along with other kids doesn't play with them very much but he starts to kind of have all these like freudian reflections basically like about his penis like about his sexuality but also about like seeing other kids being able to play and like have fun and he's like my life sucks like i'm this like weakling um oh another thing to go into that about mishima that i don't really understand how he fit it like became such a famous novelist but he is like openly homosexual in his novels like a lot of people are homosexual and i think he had like a wife and kids in japan but it was sort of like a mum's the word sort of like secret that he was gay but not like not a secret at all yeah um which really boggles my mind because confessions of a mask was really famous when it um when it well it was published in english in 1958 so i guess our years are off a little bit but he, you know, he's this really famous novelist who's writing novels about being gay, which I can't see how well that was received in Japan, but whatever. Um, so a lot of the book is like him admiring like male bodies and sort of like, I don't really know who I am. Uh, I'll read a quote from the beginning. Like, this is a few sentences from the beginning of chapter three in the book. He says, 
Everyone says that life is a stage, but most people do not seem to become obsessed with the idea, at any rate not as early as I did. By the end of childhood I was already firmly convinced that it was so, and that I was to play my part on the stage without once ever revealing my true self. So basically he's like brings forth this concept of like no one is ever going to know the real me. Like I yeah. I have this like complete sort of like I'm cut off from the world and um so this character Kochan the narrator kind of goes through various stages of describing like when he's trying to fall in love with a girl and when it doesn't work and he joins like a school where they do you know sparring and he like loves the other boys bodies and stuff like that and um so how old was he when he wrote this like how long was he cuz it sounds like these are thoughts that you know he was holding on to for a really long time. Right. Okay. So this is published in 49 and he was born in 25. So 49 okay. minus 25, you're better at math than me. Uh, 24. 24. So he he publishes his book when he's 24, so um yeah, like a lot of kind of like pent up thoughts and stuff like that. Yeah. And one particular section of the book that I really love, and this is like not really spoilers for anyone. I don't really think Mishima's books kind of like have a reveal, so it doesn't really, you know, you should just read the book for what it is. But this, yeah, there's a passage at the end that I actually, the reason why I got introduced to this book was I um, did an essay about it in college. And he just is one of those people who's like super create like it's very subtle, but he's really literary and amazing. Like the final scene in the book, he meets up again with the with the with the girl who he previously had like tried to fall in love with, but it didn't work. And there's all these like subtle things about how she's tan now and he's not, and he's like seeing all these like young men like play in the courtyard and he's in the shadow and like it's just so amazing, like, this metaphor of, like, everyone who's, like, themselves is, like, out in the sun and playing and having fun. And basically, I think he's making a statement of, like, all these, like, hetero people, like, know who they are and don't have to, like, hide who they are. Whereas he is just, like, I'm really pale and I'm really frail and I'm, like, watching all these, like, amazing people, like, have a great time and he just doesn't know what to do with himself. And yeah, it's, that's feel like he's allowed yeah part of that yeah and that's basically like the whole book is just dropping those like awesome little hints and bombshells of like of this guy who was like really awkward and believed in this like crazy beauty thing there's also like he's just such a fun person like when you know about the biography of his life to read his writing is sort of like every little thing is like oh what does that mean you know um yeah because it sounds he, kind of triumphant that you know that that person, you know, became successful. I, I don't know if he felt any better after, you know, kind of revealing himself through his books. Yeah, I think that he did have, like, sort of a try. Like, I think that he hopefully saw in himself like some milestones that he met because like he starts as this like frail dude but if you look up pictures of Mishima like in his heyday he like basically is like Bruce Lee fit like he is like <laughs> in, he he had this whole like thing with beauty of being like absolutely like perfect and stuff like that so his body was like absolutely insane like even up to the point when he committed suicide he was like working out like all the time and just like this really good looking guy but the other thing that I think is really interesting about it is um 
you know, like I said before, like I'm this Western reader who's reading this guy, so I just love him. I also love the fact that me and him share a birthday, so that kind of like drew me really? closer to nice. yeah, January fourteenth. Woohoo! But um, <laughs> the other the other factor in it, which I feel like a little bit weird about too, is that I kind of get to read him from this culturally blank perspective of like, you know, I mean. Basically, like, you know, I had the opportunity, like, uh, almost two years ago now, or like a year and a half ago, to go to Japan and visit our friend Brett there. And um, I asked people, I asked, like, young people about Mishima, and I was like, is it weird that I, like, I shouldn't walk around and be like, Mishima's my favorite novelist, I fucking love Mishima. And they're like, yeah, that's a little, it's like, it's like being conservative, you know? It's like, yeah, it's sort of, it's like running around and being like, yeah, this right-wing author is like my favorite ever I mean, he's still, like, a part of their literary culture, but I don't think it's necessarily as PC as being, like, I love Murakami, you know? Like... Yeah, yeah, his his politics have kind of... Yeah, I think, like, yeah, but that's an interesting thing, like, reading it from my perspective, because I just never, like, it was almost, like, in reverse, you know what I mean? Like, learning about his politics was, like, a footnote to him being this amazing author. Yeah. But... Over there, I think it's a little bit wishy-washy. Like, I don't, you know, I think it might, like, look a little weird if you go, if you march into the bookstore and you're like, I want to find Mishima. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I did. They don't have the, like, Mishima, like, book bags and, you know, stylized (laughs) stuff, like the Great Gatsby stuff here. Yeah, yeah, the, like, pictures of his face cutting (laughs) cutting his own head off on the tote bag or whatever. Um, but I did, I actually did find just like in like a mat, like a Barnes and Noble type bookstore there, I did buy Confessions of a Mask in Japanese. So I have the, like, I have an original Japanese edition that has, you had to give a photo ID or something. Yeah. I'm probably on like a list or something, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically Confessions of a Mask in a nutshell. It's a little bit of Yukio Mishima. He went on to, I mean, he wrote like. He's one of those people that wrote so much that, like, it's not all translated into English, even though he's so famous. He has, like, you know, something like 50 novels and, like, 100 plays or something like that. Um, yeah, I have um, The Sound of Waves and also yeah. have Temple of the Golden Pavilion, I believe. I have not read either of those, though. Yeah, th- those are both great. Sound of Waves was his biggest one. Actually, that brings that's a good segue to... Um, this is a New York Times article that... Um, was I found it like on an online archive, but yeah, it's a, there's a New York Times article called "What He Had to Hide" by Re- Ben Ray Redman, which actually came out in 1958. So it's like when "Confessions of a Mask" was translated into English. Okay. Um, I won't go through his like whole review of it, but he does say like his quote is basically in "Confessions of a Mask," a literary artist of delicate sensibility and startling candor has chosen to write for the few rather than the many. So basically he's saying, you know, like this is for people who it's super relatable, like as a, you know, if you've ever felt like an outsider, which who hasn't. Um, yeah. And that that's that's actually how my professor kind of brought it into class as well. He was like, this book is all just about like, if you ever felt like you didn't really know yourself, just read this book. And it's like, it's one of those books where you read it and you're just like, oh, other people think like me too. Like I'm not alone. Yeah, uh, especially coming from someone so different from you, like so, like yeah, this guy, cross culturally in like the forties, this guy was yeah. like writing about me apparently. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's just one. Of, it's like a really good sort of sort of book, and then you know the rest of his books. Um, 
he like the final four novels that he wrote and one of the manuscripts that he handed in on that fateful day in 1970 is he wrote like a a a grouping of four novels called the sea of fertility which is like a continuing story and those novels are really good too i've only read two of them but um spring snow and runaway horses are what i've read and those books are just great i mean it's that same crazy sensibility that mishima has but he's also talking about reincarnation like there's all these characters in it through like a few generations that are like reincarnated versions of themselves and stuff and Mm -hmm. uh it's really crazy so yeah that's that's yukio mishima and confessions of a mask that's awesome yeah um we didn't I, I guess we talked a little bit about the format in the beginning um yeah i don't know what i mean should we cut like i think most podcasts have like an exit caption or something we're at around 50 minutes but there's probably a few minutes of that where we were figuring things out in the beginning yeah yeah i think there's room for talking about random stuff or what we might be doing in the future i don't know yeah yeah i mean where I mean, I guess the basic format of the podcast is just picking the next book and going with it. Um, I hadn't yeah. read, I hadn't reread um, Confessions of a Mask like you had read, reread Warlock recently. I haven't read it in a little while. Yeah, I was actually I wanted to pick it up, or I picked it up before you even you know presented this idea to, to do the podcast to me. I was thinking uh, that I wanted to revisit. I think I, I think I'd read it over Christmas break, like I don't know, four or five years ago. So mm. it's nice to you know, revisit things like that. Um, what are the, but I didn't feel comfortable enough to talk about it in any, <laughs> any length, like without, you know, going back to it. What are the books that you've reread the most? Uh, Confederacy of Dunces is number one. Oh like, yeah. How many times I've have you read it? Probably read that like seven or eight times. <laughs> Shit. I've uh, read it like, so easy. I've it's read like it like really, one and a half really times. You should, it, you'll go through it in like a couple days. Like yeah. It's, it flows like crazy. Yeah. Confederacy of Dunce is good. I was also thinking too, um, just in terms of format of the podcast going forward, I don't know if I'll keep this in or take it out, but I definitely think too, we could do, I wonder if we'll ever pick the same one and then do like a joint book or, <laughs> or like stuff like books that really defined like our whole, kind of thing yeah like, deep like dive maybe we should do like a like an episode that's like just both of us are doing infinite jest or something <laughs> yeah because that was i feel like that was almost like a turning point when we were both reading infinite jest it was like oh shit like and that brought us on to pension and stuff like that yeah i don't know infinite jest is like it's hard because that's become like such a punchline i like know almost, i know people yeah. just like do, probably have never even they don't really know anything about it but they just know that it's like gigantic and right yeah it is such like a it is such a pretentious punch- and that it's like yeah. a doorstop <laughs> it is a punchline and it's also it like around. i feel like there's like a whole kind of cult around some books like infinite jest or gravity's rainbow and stuff like that where like people don't like won't believe you if you say you've read it like yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, like I literally I've read art like reviews of of Gravity's Rainbow where like the New York whatever the guy who is right or gal who's re- writing for the magazine will be like well I didn't finish this book yeah it's like yeah. what <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I think we could talk about Infinite Jest because like I'm not gonna present it as like the greatest fucking thing ever yeah um, we don't have to kind of you know it's like 
yeah <laughs> we're not, it's not about like praising it endlessly it's about you know trying to review it you know talk about it and and yeah. whatever different our takes on it that would that would be interesting to do yeah for sure yeah i mean I, I could go anywhere hopefully you know anyone listening out there if we start to have a community hearing suggestions or you know wherever wherever the road takes us something that i like something i mentioned in the beginning that i think is a really interesting exercise is i i really do cast actors in my head like of the books that i'm reading um yeah so i definitely i always want to hear that like if you're ever reading a book and you're think and you're and you and you're thinking of a particular actor i definitely want to know that because i feel like um like one of the books that i've reread the most is the hobbit like i've read it i think like four or five times and it's so different and the lord of the rings i've read like two three times and uh it's so, like i i love reading the lord of the rings and thinking about like elijah wood as frodo yeah i, that, I just think it like the casting so well it the casting is so well done that it's just sort of like yeah but now i can experience like what the movie would have been with all the depth <laughs> yeah it's a lot longer of a movie in your head <laughs> it, it's just you can't I can't do that with The Hobbit because the movie was just so terrible. Well, oh. just ignore that. Just think of <laughs> just think of the guy yeah. that they did cast Bilbo. The first just casting of Bilbo, yeah, or Martin Freeman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Old Bilbo it was great. We do not recommend the Hobbit. We have no endorsement of the new Hobbit movies, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatsoever. Um, but yeah, I think I think this went pretty well. It went. It's pretty. It, we we reached almost an hour pretty smoothly. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Shitty Book Reports. Um, you can catch us on Instagram, Twitter, or Gmail at uh, SBR the podcast. Uh, send us your complaints, maybe some praise. That'd be cool. <laughs> some uh, books you want us to read, stuff like that, ideas, anything. Uh, it's all welcome. Thanks. See ya. Mm-hmm.